0: This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guests today are Richard Warburton and Raul Gabriel Irma. Richard and Raul are the presenters of a series of learning paths, including Getting Started with Reactive Programming, Reactive Programming Fundamentals, and Build Reactive Applications in akka. and the videos, Asynchronous Programming in Java, Programming Reactive Systems with RxJava, and Programming Actors with akka. Richard is a software engineer, teacher, and Java champion and the author of the O'Reilly book, Java 8 Lambdas. Raul is CEO of Cambridge Spark and the co-author of the book, Java 8 in Action, and together they run the training company, Iterator Learning. And you can find out more about their learning paths and books at Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to safaribooksonline.com. So a lot to talk about today. A little later, we'll get a preview of the upcoming O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference, but we'll start by talking some Java with Richard Warburton and Raúl Irma. Hello, Richard. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Good to speak to you. And hi, Raúl. Thank you for joining us.
1: Hi, Jeff. Well, thanks for inviting us.
0: So you've both written books about Java 8, but before we get into that specifically, I wonder if we should start with Java 9. Do you think the changes in Java 9 match the impact or the importance of the changes that happened in Java 8 when it
1: was released? I think it's a fantastic question, and uh, I'm sure uh, every developer and architect uh, has has different views on, on this question. So um, to me, um, Java 9 has a a large impact for the future of the Java platform as a whole and for the ecosystem. I think it's a great thing that, you know, after all those years of research and development, the, the Java team managed to push modularity as something that's usable for the JDK, but also useful for developers uh, to use and architect the software. But I do think it's um modularity is not a something that will benefit everybody tomorrow. However, Java 8 brought a ton of language features as opposed to kind of a whole new way of thinking about your architecture that is useful tomorrow. So you can use it today. So you can make use of uh, flagship features like Lambdas and the Stream API to really help your code be more readable, maintainable, and read like the problem statement. So that's why I'm a big fan of the work that was done in Java 8, because it really helps productivity from day one. However, Java 9 is kind of more of a longer term kind of benefit.
2: I kind of broadly agree with what Raoul's saying there. Java 8 has lots of stuff which you can just learn Java 8 and you can make use of it in your day job immediately. And you can get productivity benefits, readability benefits in terms of your code immediately from things like Lambdas and streams. Java 9 has, from a developer point of view, an immediate disruption rather than an immediate benefit. So there's a lot of things which people have to fiddle with to get to work nicely with Java 9 uh modules there's a lot more of an upgrade headache, so the Java nine case is a lot more difficult to support. Not only that, as far as I'm aware, Java nine at the moment is only a six-month release, like it doesn't have a long-term support to it. That's coming with Java 10. Um, so for a lot of developers, it might even be worth them skipping going to 9 and going for 10, which actually has some proper long-term support. It may have changed since I last read the schedule, but that's, that's what I looked at last time. Uh, so I'd say Java 8, get on the bandwagon as soon as possible. Java 9, you're going to have to be more cautious to avoid things breaking. And even though the benefits are there for a lot, of the, a lot of the benefits in Java 9 are really to be felt by the JDK development team who have more tools to work on Java with, but not necessarily day to day developers. I mean, there's lots of useful little features. Raul and I have given a bunch of talks about kind of improvements in the Streams API, Collectors API, Optional, Completable Future, there's new Process API. There's lots of these little really nice improvements, but they're all incremental rather than a step change.
0: Well, regarding the changes that happened with Java 8, let's talk about both Lambdas and streams. Let's start with Lambdas. Just broadly, how did that change things, and how do Lambdas improve the experience of developing in
2: Java? Well, I think when it comes to Lambda expressions, uh, a problem that whenever you ask Java developers or when you ask people about Java software development that people always find frustrating is Java is just too verbose in some way. It's not necessarily it's not stability or performance or security for a lot of people. It's just it's a bit too verbose, a bit fiddly at the language side. So lambdas really help solve that kind of problem. The way they help is by giving you a concise way of representing behavior, and that means that people can write libraries and methods that are more flexible because they can be easily parameterized by behavior. So it enables you to have libraries like the streams API and the collectors API and all sorts of stuff like that. And so they do help with that verbosity and they help, you know, make the code easy to read. You can read more like the, suppose you were trying to implement some business objective. What you want is your code to read as similarly to that problem statement. So as similarly to a plain English description of that business problem as you possibly can. And Lambdas and to an extent method references help you get there.
1: Yeah. And, I think that's a fantastic uh, argument there. And we definitely want to be writing code that's closer to the, to the problem statement. And I would say, you know, in the object-oriented programming kind of history that, you know, goes for decades, we've always learned that, you know, we need to write code that calls for requirement changes and is flexible. And we add abstraction on, on top of that to, to help maintenance. So that's something we've known for decades. Unfortunately, there is little incentive to write a code to make use of several layers of abstractions, because unfortunately, like Richard is saying, it often is really verbose in in Java. And where Lambdas comes in is that they're not really adding new power to the Java language, but they're helping me make things more concise. So there's a high incentive to write good code because it's a lot simpler to do so. So a lot of the design patterns that we've learned that, you know, takes a a lot of of boilerplate to to implement. With Lambda expressions, suddenly they're, they're a lot more concise. So the path to Writing good code is shorter than in the past. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that Lambda expressions uh, have definitely helped with uh, in the Java ecosystem.
2: Are there still some myths out there about Lambdas? I don't know about myths. I mean, I would say that there's lots of, how can I put it, lots of different opinions on Lambda expressions Maybe we should say there's lots of people who perhaps aren't so familiar with the syntax or aren't so familiar with the new libraries, and they might find it a little bit hard to read at first. So I think some people will convert that in their mind into a readability myth, which isn't that it is harder to read. It's just that uh, you need to get familiar and comfortable with them as a new language feature in order to be able to
1: read code written with lambdas more easily. I mean, I would add, you know, it's it's easy to get excited about new things. And Richard and I were not necessarily advocating that you have to use Lambdas everywhere in your code. That's certainly not a, a, a recommendation. What, what, what we're saying is Lambdas can help write code that is simpler to to, to understand and reads like a problem statement. And in certain scenarios, especially with the stream API and different kind of comparator, different libraries, Lambdas are really useful, but it doesn't mean that Lambdas have to use everywhere. It often makes sense to uh, use, for example, method reference, which is another language feature that Richard mentioned earlier, which has even enhanced readability properties. Sometimes it might make sense to have a class and good old fashioned objects instead of lambdas. So I guess in terms of myths, it doesn't mean that lambdas have to be used everywhere. You know, like with everything, uh, new language features have to be used with with care. Different individuals in a team and organizations have to agree on the coding standards so that everyone uh, leverage the benefits.
0: Do you think there are at least some developers who are still dealing with the issue of lambdifying existing code bases?
1: I think it's interesting because, you know, when we deliver training courses, we, we often ask people, you know, what sort of Java version you're using. And, you know, the reality is that a lot of uh, Java projects are still legacy projects and might be stuck with, you know, version uh, 4, 1.4, or version 5 of Java. So in often those scenarios, it you know, especially if you're depending on library that don't have support for Java 8, then uh, it becomes really hard to be able to use those new features because they're simply not accessible to you. So from my experience, though, we, we noticed that once you start working with Lambdas and, and Java 8, then often you know, people really enjoy the benefits uh, in terms of productivity. I think
2: the other thing to remember about that is a lot of projects, even once they've moved to Java 8, will have a long period of time where not everyone in the team is confident writing Java 8 code. So, for example, some people may be happy with lambdas, some people may not be happy with lambdas, and they might be choosing to write code in an older style just to make sure that all of their team are on board with it. Or some of the team members may not be writing in a a lambdafied style as such. Now, also a lot of projects we'll have a bunch of legacy code that just works fine and they're not uh, modifying or maintaining and there's very little business benefit in going around and there's a lot of risk and very little benefit in just rewriting all of your old code to this new style if you're not actually actively maintaining or working in that area of the project beforehand you can kind of see this as well with a few other language feature changes so in clips for example is a very old open source project and for years and years and years after Java 5 had been released, they still had a load of place in their code base where they could have used generics but didn't. And there's a lot of projects like this that just last for ages and ages. They're, you know, they're really successful pro- software projects in many ways because they're, they're living for so long. But that also means they may have lots of code that doesn't actually get touched that frequently and thus will not be lambdafied maybe for, for ages down the line.
0: Okay, let's talk about streams can you summarize what were one or two of the biggest wins for developers that came out of the introduction
2: of the Streams API? The, the biggest benefit really is a question of code readability. If you've got a collections a Java collections framework that you're using, so lists, sets, hash maps, things like that, people, Java developers use all the time If you're trying to take those collections and process the data in them, what you would previously have to do is basically write some kind of loop and rewrite some basic boilerplate logic every single time you wanted to uh, process some data from a collection. Whereas the Streams API enables you to lift that level of your code up to a higher level of abstraction and use operations in the streams, API like filter, map, reduce, things that are active at, offer a higher level of abstraction for data processing and tell you not how you're going to implement this, but tell you what you want as a result. So it's more declarative and less imperative.
1: To add to that, most developers in the career at some point, we kind of uh, have to play with SQL right, as a way to kind of process data and interfacing with a database. And in SQL, we can easily say things like select all the transactions that are greater than a certain amount, or find me the maximum transaction or group them based on some characteristics, for example, the currency. And it's really easy to specify. Everyone can immediately read the SQL query and understand what the objective is. So the question is, why can't we have that in Java? Like Richard is saying, in Java, unfortunately, we, we're used to having for loops and ifs and and state that we accumulate to, and we have to rewrite things over and over and again, which increases the scope for bugs, which prevents easy readability and understanding. And that's the gap that the Stream API is really filling essentially. It's the idea that we can have something similar to SQL, but in Java, specify data processing queries.
0: So I wanted to ask how easy or how difficult is it to write Java code that fits into a microservices or service-oriented architecture communication pattern? And was that impacted by uh, Java 8?
1: I think the the current context of how the, um, the technological industry is evolving is that we have a lot more data. For example, if we take a service like a Facebook and Twitter, it's all about communication between different users and some sort of back-end service that can take the information from user and process it. And that's really independent from, from Java and any programming language is the type of services that are provided to to customers or provided by businesses have a lot more communication than what we had uh, decades ago, and that's putting pressure for programming language ecosystems to to evolve and be able to to cope with that. In the sense that suddenly we need to be able to implement systems that uh, communicate a lot more than what they were doing in the past. We have to cope with higher loads of queries. So. I personally don't think that Java 8 necessarily, you know, is immediately contributing uh, to this, but s- certainly the problem is how can we write systems that handle a series of non-functional requirements? Like how do we write a system that is robust, is fault tolerant? Uh, those are general concerns that any architect, any developer uh, should have in mind. And what we're seeing in standard is that there's a, uh, a series of uh, libraries and patterns, so uh, for example, the the active model, reactive streams, non-blocking IO that are helpful uh, towards this mission. And the features that were introduced in Java 8 helps you make use of those patterns and libraries in an easier way. So the contribution that Java 8 is making is not a, a direct contribution, but I would say more of an indirect contribution because it's embracing essentially the, the benefits that we've learned about functional programming for decades, but suddenly that's made a, a very accessible through Lambda's expression in particular and method references.
0: We mentioned in the introduction that the two of you present a video on programming actors with Akka. So can you explain where actors and Akka come into this picture of creating reactive and asynchronous applications?
2: Sure. So I we, we have this whole kind of learning pathway on the Safari site where we talk about a few of these different paradigms. And I think the real the real challenges for people who are moving to microservices. Well, there are lots of different challenges. We're kind of more focused on the more technical side of those challenges rather than, say, the team or organizational side of things. But for, in terms of the technical challenges, a lot of that revolves around writing reliable software. So um, software that is a microservices-based architecture ends up doing a lot more network communication than it would do if it was all monolithically sitting within one process where you could just you make a regular method call. Now, there's huge latency overheads if you are doing uh, remote procedure calls or any kind of network communication, and you're doing it in an entirely synchronous manner. And so several of the programming paradigms that we've looked at and talk about uh, and, and give training courses on as well, attempt to overcome that problem. So, reliability and also the performance side of things from the, the asynchronous network communication. Now, actors are systems that have entirely local based state. So, they don't share state between different actors. They try and encapsulate all the state within a local actor, only have a single thread modifying the state, and do all of their communication through asynchronous message passing. So the, the asynchronous aspect of that really helps with the, the latency of a communication pattern. And the, the fact that they try and encapsulate this small local state and have, for example, strategies for restarting them and things like that that help reduce the failover scenarios and help improve reliability all fit very well into solving those kind of performance plus reliability problems.
1: And uh, I would I would add to that, that. I think it's an excellent point that, uh, that Richard is making that uh, using actors, you know, we've got this nice property of local state, so that reduces the scope for bugs because uh, the traditional kind of Java way of thinking about writing software is sharing mutable state, uh, which leads to a whole class of concurrency bugs like deadlocks and race conditions, which the active model essentially helps reduce. Uh, but I would add that there's also... Software engineering benefits from buying into something like the actor model because all those actors are independent and communicating synchronously. What you get in a nutshell is that you have different services that are entirely decoupled from one another, and that's uh, highly useful from a, a maintenance point of view. Can you talk
0: about how you can use RxJava to develop reactive code?
1: Yes, yeah, so
2: RxJava is a framework for uh, writing kind of reactive programming with? and the key abstraction that RS Java uh, offers, the observable or flowable abstraction, is basically uh, like a stream of events that's going through its kind of connected pipeline, and then you can connect together different operations that you would perform on those stream of events. So, the Java Rates Streams API, for example, introduces what's superficially a very similar API to RxJava. So they both have operations like you know filter, map, reduce, things like that. But whilst the R- Java Rates Streams API is basically a blocking in-memory computation, so you say what your pipeline of operations are, and then you go and just do all of those things in one big batch on all the data. Bam. RxJava, on the other hand, offers you a pipeline where you connect together these operations. And then incrementally, events can flow through the pipeline of operations. So you put these things together, you set them up, and you have some source of events that comes into your system, and you have some other source of output events. So for example, maybe you might be using it for monitoring some IoT devices that you've set up around your house. So you've got this stream of input data from different sensors, like temperature ticks, Humidity data and all sorts of things like that, and you can put together pipelines saying, "Well, you know, if the humidity is above this certain temperature, I want my dehumidifier to come on." But actually, my dehumidifier isn't very efficient unless the temperature is above twenty degrees. So I only want the humidity to be above this level and the temperature to be above twenty degrees or something like that. And you can combine together these different operations and perform them on on ongoing streams of events. As a result of that, it also uh, needs to have a few other features. So Java streams, because it's got all the data in one go and just does this kind of big batch mode computation, doesn't need to worry about things like producer-consumer problems. So, for example, suppose your stream of events is coming into your system way too fast and things that are processing that data can't keep up, you end up with potentially a big memory leak where these events are queuing up and there's nothing to deal with them. So RH Java also has a, a back-pressure uh, concept that uh, lets you slow down producers and control these things a lot more elegantly. And in fact, we mentioned at the beginning one of the things that more minor features that Java 9 has, this dovetails quite well with, is that the the Reactive Streams API, which RH Java implements and some other systems implement as well, like the Akka Streams API as well, those are all being standardized or have been standardized in Java 9 as part of the Flow API.
1: I, I would add that, you know, in practice, that there's at least two concrete situations where uh, I've seen RxJava being useful. One is like Richard is saying, when you're connecting to some sort of a remote API and subscribe to, to events. So it might be something like the the Twitter firehose or the stock market text. And it's really beneficial to have a stream-like API, all the different operations that we've learned about transforming and navigating data together with some sort of IO source. So that's one place where RxJava is, is useful. And the other one is actually, it's really popular in the Android community, where you can use RxJava, for example, to subscribe to a source out of, a, of a mouse events. for example. You might be kind of a dragging your fingers on the screen, moving a cursor, then this is another kind of source of events that you could be processing using something like RxJava.
0: Well, let's uh, move away from Java and Java 8 and talk about uh, something else that you are were- both working on now and that's the first in a series of books about software development and later this year the book real world software development will be released and this is a non java specific book but more a book about how to apply what you've learned as a programmer in practical settings so as trainers and instructors what did you see that led
1: you to write this book actually i remember like it was yesterday so uh, richard and i we were sitting in a park in the summer on a bench and kind of reflecting on the on the in the industry and, and Java, and it struck us that especially for new graduates that, that come from university, uh, we felt like unfortunately the curriculum wasn't really matching industry needs and industry demands. For example, be able to write code that is uh, tested. So think about testing your code. Thinking about various design patterns that have benefits in terms of uh, maintenance of your code. So that's kind of one of a concern. And the second concern was more a pedagogical concern is that. Often, when we see programming language being thought, examples are really toy or trivial. you know, for example, let's build a calculator calculator, or let's learn about the visitor design pattern by writing some sort of arithmetic expression parser. You know things are actually you, you won't be doing in industry. So the reason we kind of wanted to to write a, a new book here is one to really prepare uh, the next generation of software developers. Developers for industry requirements, so writing robust code as readable, maintainable, and testable, but also have fun with it by actually developing concrete applications. So, for example, in a book, we discuss how to implement Twitter. We describe how to actually implement a software that can analyze bank statements and infer different uh, metrics based on those uh, statements that you would be loading from your hard disk. So things that you'd be expected to implement at some point in your career as a real-world project.
2: Yeah, so I think we're really interested in the idea here that there's a kind of strong dovetail between both the style in which you teach things and also the content that you're teaching. So we wanted to kind of help, as Raul was saying, kind of graduate developers coming into industry and building their skills up. But We also didn't want to continue with those synthetic examples, artificial examples. So the idea of the book is every chapter or a couple of chapters is like one kind of project. And then you go along and build these different projects as you're going through. And each of the different projects will teach you certain things about programming, certain more fundamental principles as you're building them.
0: And this ties into the training company that you both run, Iterator Learning. What's happening with that endeavor?
2: Yeah. So Iterated Learning uh, runs a a variety of different training courses, mostly throughout Europe, though uh, we have run them elsewhere in the world. Uh, So we run a a number of courses on things like Java 8. Uh, We run courses on uh, reactive programming and asynchronous programming. And uh, we also have a three or five day boot camp that dovetails really well, again, with this kind of book in terms of the kind of topics taught. And again, focuses on more graduate software developers and we've had a class go through there who, who really really enjoyed that course recently so it's always great to have to help people and have really strong feedback from people on these kind of things.
0: Richard can you talk about your work with the London Java community kind of what's happening now and what are the topics that are most discussed?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been involved in the London Java community for a number of years now. I probably recently have just been very busy work-wise and haven't been as active as maybe as I have in previous years, but it's it's a fantastic community to be involved with. If anyone listening to the podcast in London, I would definitely check out the the meetup page for London Java community and and because they run pretty regular events on a variety of different topics. They run talks where sometimes you'll get talks by some of the absolute top speakers on different technology and Java-related topics from all over the globe who do visit London because London's a fairly large city and often will give an LJC talk. We run, not so much recently, but we have regular runs of things like hack days where people kind of get down and have more hands-on sessions where you can kind of pair up with people, show some people, say, your open source project, work together on things like that hack on OpenJDK, the, the open source implementation of Java that's behind the Oracle uh, releases of Java. And people have contributed patches into OpenJDK. And through the LJC, I've, I've got code in, in, the, uh, uh, in OpenJDK and a few other people have as well coming through these LJC events. And
0: Raul, can you tell us a little bit about Cambridge Spark, a learning community for data scientists and developers, which you're the CEO and co-founder of?
1: Yeah, so um, I think a lot of companies traditionally uh, have embraced becoming a digital company. And now they're realizing that actually in this day and age, you need to become a data-driven company. And what Cambridge Spark does is to provide professional development for data scientists and developers. So we train developers and business analysts to become fully qualified uh, data scientists. So how to clean, process data, apply different machine learning algorithms. Uh, to implement predictive models that will be useful for uh, senior management. So we help companies with training data scientists and hiring data scientists. And we also provide uh, consulting services when it comes to developing kind of bespoke products that make use of, you know, the latest cool artificial intelligence buzz that we often hear in the press.
0: Yeah, I know there's a program called Become a Data Scientist in Six Months. Uh, Has that been a, a popular program?
1: Yes. um, So we we run this uh, this six-month bootcamp in London, and uh, it's the next cohort that starts next week is already fully uh, subscribed. And we also have an online bootcamp, which any person in the world can take as well.
0: And let's briefly mention your work as chairman and co-founder of the Cambridge Coding Academy, which focuses on young coders at the pre-university level, right?
1: Indeed. And that's kind of a personal thing, right? I, I was lucky enough to start coding at an early age, and I, I do believe it's tremendously helped me uh, in my life, you know, any sort of ideas, we can quickly build it up, make a prototype, show it to the world, thanks to the power of the internet. And Cambridge Coding Academy, you know, our, our mission is to help the next generation become more, more digital. So we teach teenagers how to code, how to create your own game, how to create your own website, how to create an AI to play the game that that you've built so i think it's really important that the next generation really embraces uh coding because it's just a useful skills for any industry that uh, you will end up going to whether it's engineering science uh and so on
0: well richard and ro it sounds like there are a lot of things happening with with both of you if our listeners want to find out more about you and your activities can you mention websites twitter blogs that uh, that people should go to
2: Sure. So if you're interested in any of our training courses, iteratorlearning.com is the place to go to. If you want to catch up with me on Twitter, I'm at Richard Warburto. So that's my full name, but without the N, because Twitter's username policy doesn't allow me to have the full length of my whole name as my username. And the other thing I also do as well, professionally as well as running training courses, is I run a small business called Option, which produces professional tooling for developers around profiling, monitoring, and production observability. So incredibly low overhead tooling. And if you're interested in any of that, you can head on over to Option.com. Uh, how about your role?
1: I'm always keen to connect with uh, everyone, wherever in the world you are. So uh, I would recommend LinkedIn as a good place to reach to me. And also Twitter, which is at Raul UK. And yeah, it's been a, a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for, uh, for this podcast. We, I think uh, Rich and I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And I want to thank both of you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks
2: for having us, Jeff.
0: Well, now we want to give you a little bit of a preview of the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference, which will be held in New York City from February 25th through 28th, 2018. And we are happy to welcome Brian Foster, a content lead at O'Reilly Media and one of the program chairs for the event, to tell us more. Hi, Brian. Thanks for joining us.
3: Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me.
0: So one of the many themes that will be highlighted is this idea which we've covered on our podcast before, of the uh, from developer to architect concept. Can you can you talk about why that's so important nowadays and how it's going to be addressed at the at the conference?
3: Sure. I mean, as a topic, it, it is one of these that you know we're finding that a lot of technologists these days, whether they're in big enterprises or even in smaller types of situations, you know, have a need to start you know figuring out how to build systems and how not only then you know, also, how do they work with the people both adjacent to them, so in their own team, but also outside of their own departments? And how do they communicate a lot of those those ideas? So what we've been finding and I think what the audience is really responding to is this idea of, you know kind of upping their skills in the area of, you know, both learning how to take their development skills one step above by learning how to architect systems, but also how to, by doing that, becoming essentially, you know, a leader within their company, which, again, ev- involves many different things such as interfacing with managers, being able to write proposals, but also make key decisions. So it, it, there, it runs the gamut on both ends. But what I think, you know, what we also do is, is do a good job of providing a lot of different variety within the program that gives people that want to make or or are interested in that transition the opportunities to do so. You know, for example, we're featuring again Mark Richards Fundamentals of Software Architecture 2-day training, a popular event for us, but a training that, you know, tends to again draw people that are, you know, in the process of or are thinking about, you know, making, you know, this transition, whether that transition is happening actually in terms of a role change or someone that's becoming what we like to call an accidental architect. So they're having to assume a lot of these responsibilities that I mentioned earlier. That's a great way for people to get started. We've also have a, have a great batch of sessions, both in the 50-minute format and in 90-minute format that really jump into a lot of the more management and strategic you know, types of things that you'll have to be concerned about. We have a great session by Eben Hewitt called "The Architect a Strategist. So it drills down a little more into, you know, you know technology, but how can you actually plan these systems, both from a technology perspective, but also from within a larger organization and how those things fit together. And we also have another great session called Thinking Architecturally, focused a little more on the technology side, but very much about how you know individuals that are, again, assuming more responsibilities in building systems or moving into an architecture role, figure out how they can start to wear that architect hat. In the way that is both advantageous, but also efficient for both the developer teams that that architect works with, but also the organization from a broader perspective.
0: What about some other kind of emerging topics that will be covered that are really at the top of the minds of software architects right now?
3: Absolutely. You know, so there's there's really there's three that I've been seeing that I think are capturing you know the hearts and minds of of people, both very much on the front end of development in software architecture, but ones that I think are going to be kind of staples in the next two to three years. One of those is serverless. We've seen it crop up, you know, within the you know within the past two software architecture shows last year. We're seeing it continue to play a theme this year, and I, especially as again as serverless relates to microservices and as building serverless applications interfaces with some of the more key cloud platforms out there, most namely AWS. We're seeing a lot of good interest there. Another good area that we've been working on and and we're, we're starting to see more and more interest in is this idea of cloud native. You know, and companies now have you know, have made that those initial moves to become a more cloud computing type of organization but we're finding that there's still for those org- those organizations that want to continue to scale their applications and, and, and scale themselves in the cloud there's a bunch of different concerns that they need to focus on as well and, and that's relating to microservices, DevOps, continuous delivery it's a strategy that blends a lot of those development best practices together. And we're seeing a lot of interest there. We actually have a two-day training from Matt Stein that you know it delves into cloud architecture patterns, but really kind of focuses on what you need to start building things the cloud-native way, which I think will be really exciting for attendees. And we also have a really cool keynote by Kevin Stewart, who's really going to talk about what it even means to go cloud-native. So if you're interested and you've heard the term, but really have no idea, that will definitely be a keynote to keep in mind. It'll be a good one. And then, you know, again, one last one you know, that we're seeing, again, you know, we're, we're still seeing a lot of good trends around this next level microservices. What that means, you know, is essentially moving beyond the actual, you've made your initial migration, but dealing with how microservices and when, you know, how do you scale microservices? How do you keep them running in production? How do you make them more event-driven? Essentially, how they how they're interfacing with messaging and data and other parts of the platform. So that's a really interesting area.
0: And you mentioned Kevin Stewart's keynote, and I know there are a lot of interesting keynotes lined up. Can you give us a feel for what attendees can expect from the keynotes?
3: This slate of keynotes is probably my favorite that we've had, you know, since I've been chairing the show. And we have, you know, to open up, you know, the first full day of the conference, we have a great, it's almost a roundtable discussion between Martin Fowler, Neil Ford, and myself. And the loose topic of the the session is defining software architecture, but the idea is to provide more context around what we even mean by software architecture. As a term it, it's come to connotate a lot of different things, and the three of us together, you know, want to sit down and give attendees a really interesting way to help, you know, define you know, this space that they're seeing themselves immersed with, we thought we could find no one better than Martin Fowler to help us, you know, kind of, you know, define that as he is, you know, really considered to be the definer of all things within the software space. So that's really exciting. And we've tried really hard this year to make each keynote day very much around having a strong narrative arc. That kind of runs through all of them. So after Martin's keynote, we also have a couple keynotes that really focus on what it means to you know be event driven. It's a really interesting area that we've seen a lot of interest in. But we'll also have some good keynotes there, both from Cornelia Davis, um, senior director of technology at Pivotal, and then Chris Richardson, who's a very big name within the microservices space. And that's Tuesday. And on Wednesday, we really kind of delve into you know really the new, the latest and hottest in technology. I mentioned cloud native with Kevin Stewart's talk, but we also have a talk around chaos architecture. We've seen a lot of chaos engineering best practices emerge from the likes of Netflix and other leading companies. Well, this talk really looks to kind of shape, you know, defining an architecture around organizations that want to move to that type of engineering.
0: Great. And we'll have links to the conference schedule and how to register in the show notes that accompany this episode. Brian Foster, one of the program chairs for the event. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening. Once again, if you want to find out more about the learning paths, videos, and books done by our first guests, Richard Warburton and Raul Irma, including their learning paths on reactive programming and Java, and their books on Java 8, you can do that by going to Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform, and we'll have links to all these things in the show notes that accompany this episode, and we'll also have links for the schedule of and how to register for the upcoming O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference, February 25th through 28th in New York. And as always, we want to remind you that if you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Stitcher so that you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.